The last song that we sang together as a congregation, Crucified, they laid him behind a stone. It was at that moment in time that the followers of Jesus had really given up all hope. They never really fully understood when he talked about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But when two women came to that empty tomb on Sunday morning, suddenly everything changed. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, when he appeared actually 12 times over an extended period of time of 40 days, sometimes up to 500 people, it radically changed the nature of the followers of Christ. And Jesus gathered them together, and they watched him ascend into heaven. And he gave them instructions to go into the upper room, and there they were to pray. And they were to pray until the Holy Spirit of God came down upon them. Because he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. But you cannot do this on your own. I am commissioning you into a supernatural ministry and therefore, you need a supernatural power in order for it to be effective. And when the Holy Spirit came upon those early followers, 120 of them, everything began to dramatically change. They were part of the Roman Empire, the most powerful force in the entire world at that time. And yet, they literally turned that empire upside down. With 120 people in the beginning... And God began to move in mighty and miraculous ways. And as the church began to grow, from its inception, it cared about people. People were valuable to them because they were valuable to God. And when a plague entered into the Roman Empire and people were dying in the streets, the Roman Empire itself did not really take a move towards helping those who were in need, but the church did. Putting their lives on the line, they went and they helped the suffering and they laid hands on and prayed for and did what they could for those who were dying. And over the course of time, uh, medicine along with supernatural healing became the culture of their existence. That culture was in the midst of a culture of Romanism that prized or superstition and, and magic and so the very first hospital was established by the end of the 4th century in Caesarea of Cappadocia. And it would lead to scores of other buildings that would be built and established for the process of healing. As the church began to expand itself, it became um, the forerunner of establishing orphanages for children. It became a forerunner in feeding the hungry, supporting the widows, Enfolding the lonely into community, promoting education, welcoming the stranger, rescuing the suffering, drilling wells for those who were without water, paying rent, buying groceries, standing up for those who were suffering unjustly. This was the, the history of the church as it began to unfold. But all of a sudden, there was a shift that took place. When the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, he decided that he would legalize Christianity. In his mind, he thought, well, this will prevent persecution among the Christians. Because up to this point, 
those who were followers of Jesus, many of them lost their lives, putting their lives on the line for the faith and the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would not shut up. They would not back down talking about this resurrected Jesus as being the only way to the God who created them. And so, as a result of that, over the years, Christianity was politicized. It kind of lost its, its exuberance. And 500 years after that, the Roman emperor, Charlemagne, preferred a new form of evangelism. And the form of evangelism was simply, either you convert to Christianity or you die by the sword. And so then came a 200-year period of Pope-sanctioned crusades. And then after that, the Spanish Inquisition and the Salem witch hunt trials and all these things that were a part of the history of the church. And even up to our modern-day time, we have churches like um, Westboro Baptist Church that bombs abortion clinics and believe it's their calling to wipe out the LGBTQ community off the face of the earth. So the question is, how is it that the church in its history can be known for such great acts of sacrificial love, the value of human beings, and yet on the other hand, we have a very dark, tainted past. How does that come out of the same organization? How is it that the same group of people can be responsible for absolute best contributions to the world in history, also be responsible for some of the worst events that have happened in history? Well, the James, half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, said it like this. He says, out of the heart comes both blessing and cursing. In other words, one minute somebody can be blessing God, and the other minute they, they may be cursing God. And out of this, he says, he asked the question, how can that be? How can blessing and cursing pour out of the same mouth? Surely, brothers and sisters, this is not right. Now, I don't know about you. Um, we are in this series on why I am not a Christian. And most of you know I did not grow up in a Christian home. I was never around religious things. The only person I knew that who was a believer was my grandmother, but she died when I was very young. And so there were questions that I had and, and things that I would ask and pursue. And these are questions that I'm tackling for us that people who are outside the kingdom of God are asking. You hear this all the time, especially in the media, whenever, you know, somebody is speaking about the church and the positive things that have done. And, but somebody always brings up, well, yeah, but what about the Crusades? And what about the Spanish Inquisition? And what about you know, the Salem witch trials? And what about this? And what about that? And so they begin bringing up you know, the things that are not favorable to the church. And they say, how, how can that be positive for, for humanity? And so we have to answer those questions. And so the critics have critiques against the church. I'm going to give you three of them. Number one is character flaws. Character flaws. If Christianity is truth, then why are there so many non-Christians who live better lives than self-proclaimed followers of Jesus? They're more ethical. They're more moral. They're easier to get along with. They have a better work ethic. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. 
Why is that? How is that? How can you claim that Christianity is truth and that, you know, Jesus is going to, you know, come and, and uh, just, you know, change your life? If you were to say to somebody, uh, I am a conservative Christian, immediately images come to their mind. Oh, you're that group who wants to bomb abortion clinics. Or you're that group that wants to go down to the gay parade and, and picket everybody and tell them how much God hates them. And so those are the mental images that often come up because that's what they equate conservative Christianity with, even though that may not be necessarily true. For some of you, it's a more personal thing. Maybe you have personally experienced injustice or hurt or pain having been involved in a church. Things were said to you, things were done to you by people who you considered maybe leaders or people who were friends or you looked up to and all of a sudden they brought great hurt into your life and they were supposed to be Christians. Maybe you were abused sexually by somebody in the church. Whatever has been done by Jesus' people which you know are not right and you don't want any part of it, I understand, I get that. In fact, somebody has said, and we've all heard it said before, that the best argument against Christianity is some Christians. And it was Gandhi who almost became a follower of Jesus, but here's what he ultimately said. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. So let me say three things about character flaws. Number one... Uh, not everybody who professes to be a Christian is actually a Christian. Right? Jesus taught that there will be false teachers who will come into the church that would seek to lead people astray into false doctrines that would lead to false behaviors. The Apostle Paul, who founded many of the churches that we have written about in the New Testament... He talked about this all the time with the leadership of the church. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false teachers who teach false doctrine that's going to lead to false behavior under the umbrella of Christianity. And it was Jesus himself who talked about the fact that in the church there will be wheat and tares that will grow up together. Now, if you've ever been in a wheat field, you know that wheat and tares, when they grow up together, you can't distinguish one from the other. But when harvest time comes, the wheat tends to bow its head. So it's like bowing its head, but the tares stick straight up. And it is distinguishable between the two. Jesus said that there will be the saved and the unsaved in the church together, although all will claim to be followers of mine. But when harvest day comes, when judgment day comes, I will separate the wheat from the tares. That's why Jesus said, some people will say to me, But Lord, Lord, did we not? And then give him their resume about all the things he had done, only to hear Jesus say to them, depart from me because I never knew you. That would be a horrible time to find out that I was merely a cultural Christian rather than an actual follower of Jesus who is producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the virtues of his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on and so forth. So do not assume if somebody who has hurt you is necessarily a Christian. The second thing I would say is not everything done in the name of Christianity was actually sanctioned by God. 
God never sanctioned the Crusades. Jesus never led a revolt. He never taught his followers to lead a revolt. That is not, that's not what he did. Jesus didn't come into America to be a Democrat or a Republican. All right, so Republicans like to say, well, you know, Jesus is like a Republican because, you know, he, he, was, he was so doctrinally sound and, and, and he had truth and he had all these things going for him. And then the Democrats will say, but yes, but he was so compassionate and loving uh, towards the poor and towards the marginalized. And, and so most politicians will make arguments on both sides and use the same scripture to validate that Jesus would have been a Democrat had he been here or he would have been a Republican had he been here. Can I just say this? Jesus did not come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. He brought his kingdom into the world. We are kingdom citizens and that is to be our first line of priority. It is the kingdom of God, and not all things that are done in the name of the kingdom of God were actually sanctioned by God. Here's the third thing, is, and this is really important, is that growth, spiritual growth and change in your behavior comes very slowly. See, people have this idea that if you get saved today, like tomorrow your life is just going to be absolutely transformed, different, you're going to be a perfect human being. Eh, not at all. I had trouble with drugs and alcohol before I was saved. I had trouble with drugs and alcohol after I got saved. It was a process of growth that God began to wean me off those uh, coping mechanisms in order to replace that with what it is God wanted to do in my life and your life. You never know where a person began their story. You know, character is often built in an environment that is safe and stable. Some of you came from homes that were anything but safe and stable. Some of you came from horrific backgrounds. Horrific things have been done to you, and you came broken before the Lord. And maybe there were generational sins and ties and mental illness that characterizes uh, the generations in your family, and there were uh, maybe some horrific things that were done to you in the name of religion. And so like you're like way down the line, and it might be that somebody who grew up in a very good, stable, moral home who's not a follower of Jesus may look like their character is so much better than yours. I get that. I understand that because you didn't have that kind of beginning, and you're trying to work your way there, and you're trying to let God grow you and mature you and change you and develop you into Christ-likeness, but it is a process that takes time. My point is this. If, you've, if you're looking for perfection, don't come to a church. You ain't going to find it. We're all a mess. We're all messy, but we're trying to get better. This is... Um, it's not a country club for the perfect people. We are a hospital for those who are sick, but we want to get well. And so when somebody characterizes and looks at character flaws of somebody and says, well, you know, obviously uh, they're not a Christian. They're not a believer. Look at what they do. Well, that might be true. They may not be living uh, the life that Jesus would want them to live at this point, but we come from very broken places, and God is in the process of conforming us into the image of Jesus. Number two is injustice and a violent past. 
And uh, I've already mentioned a few dark spots, the Crusades and Inquisitions, Salem Trials, um, Christian leaders in the slave trade was another thing. Modern skeptics Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens say, said this, that religion has overall been really bad for the world. Religion gives groups a sense of superiority, aggravates tribal hatred, and leads to violence. Well, if you were going to take all of the history of the violence under the name of Christi Christianity, the Crusades, the Inquisitions, all of that, in a 500-year span of time, the loss of lives was about 250,000 people. But let me give you three rulers who kicked God out of their lives and became Marxist atheists. Hitler killed 6 million Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals. Stalin killed 20 million through mass slayings and labor camps. Mayo ex exterminated 50 to 70,000 of his own people. If you were, that's just a tip of the iceberg. If you were to take all of the mayhem done in the name of, you know, atheism, uh, now you have uh, an estimated somewhere between um, 100 million to 150 million people died in a 100-year span of time in the name of, of atheism. Again, um, Jesus... Jesus never sanctioned crusades. He never sanctioned inquisitions, witch hunt trials. But what he did do, he came into the world to the cross to absorb sin. And he prayed for God to forgive his killers. The ones who strung him on the cross. And though we cannot deny that Christians have carried to violence and injustice throughout history. Saying that these were conflicts fought for the Christian faith, I think, is dubious because they certainly fall outside the intentions of Christianity's founder, who is Christ. Number three is hypocrisy. This is a big one, right? You've probably heard, well, oh, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Oh, really? Well, the top three reasons people give for rejecting Christianity for moralistic reasons is this, we're anti-homosexual, we're judgmental, and we're hypocrites. There's top three reasons. And one of the reasons the hypocrisy sticks is because there was a recent study that was done that determined those who claimed to be Christians when it came to following to the following list, um, gambling, visiting porn pornographic, pornographic websites, taking something that did not belong to you, saying mean things behind somebody's back, consulting a medium or psychic, having a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something to someone that is not true, getting back to someone for something they did to you, and consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. There was absolutely no stati statistical difference between a follower of Christ, a Christian, and a non-Christian. The only place they found a statistical difference between the two, and I kid you not, is in recycling. Go figure. And so when people look at that, they say, well, this exemplifies our, our understanding of Christianity. You're all just a bunch of hypocrites. You're going to look down at us. You're going to rail against our sins. But yet you've turned a blind eye to your own. It's what Jesus said. Hey, before you walk over and pull the speck out of your brother's eye, you might want to look in the mirror because you got a plank in your own. 
And so when the world looks at that, they, they have a legitimate argument, right? They say, well, your life just doesn't seem to be any different. That, I know that ties closely with character flaws. Uh, we, you know, we are not perfect people. I get that. I understand that. But, but by the same token, there should be a difference that is beginning to evolve in our lives that would separate us out from the pack as we are living in the kingdom of God, having been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness there should be something that is different and unique. We have the Holy Spirit, and as we talked about last week in Galatians 5, you can either live hell up or heaven down. You can either walk according to the flesh or you walk according to the Spirit. And as you're walking according to the Spirit, God begins to flush out the issues of the flesh that always leads to consequences that are really not, not what we want in life. Anger and bitterness and jealousy and unforgiveness and all those kinds of things that are the offshoots of walking in the flesh rather than in the spirit. So in Luke chapter 10, if you've not turned there, uh, I want us to look at this parable that Jesus gave because in this parable, Jesus acknowledges the reality of hypocrisy among religious people, even very religious people. And he deals with that issue in the parable commonly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law means that this was a, a Jewish religious like a lawyer, or he taught law, he was astute in the laws of God, the commands of God. So there's like 613 laws that they added to the already commands of God. Uh, and so he's just like an expert in this area. And notice he comes to Jesus because he wants to test him. Because at this point in juncture in Jesus's ministry, they're looking for a reason why they can get rid of him. They don't like his teachings. They don't like the fact that he claims to be God. They don't like the fact that he does miracles uh, in order to um, you know, exonerate himself in what he claims to be. And so he says, teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? Because this guy's supposed to be an expert, right? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But notice very carefully what Luke says, the writer of this gospel, but he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he did not want to admit that he was not good enough to merit heaven on his own, right? I'm good enough. I'm proud enough. I've done enough things. I'm, a, I'm, I'm smart enough. I know all the, the religious jargon, and I pray three times a day, and I, you know, I, I've memorized the entire Old Testament. I got it. So he wants to justify. So he asked Jesus, well, it's kind of like smuggling. Well, who is my neighbor? Like, you know, tell me who it is. I'll do a little kind deed for them, check them off my list, and I'm good. Jesus sees right through that sham. He knows what's going on in this guy's heart. So in reply, Jesus says, and he gives a parable. A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down to the same road, 
And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the priest, I mean to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look, after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell at the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, all right. Go and do likewise. Now, to set the context of this parable, um, a priest and a Levite. So, a priest would be like a church pastor. A Levite would be like a seminary student, right? He's training, uh, under training, in order to be a, a leader in the church. Now, these guys are probably, when they see this guy half beaten, they're probably on their way to do spiritual things, right? The priest is going to minister in the temple, uh, the Levites kind of like his, his sidekick. And so they're actually heading towards the temple in order to perform their temple duties. They're going to go do a religious thing. But when they come across the pathway and see this guy beaten half dead, they just move on the other side and keep going. They don't stop. They don't pay attention to him. They don't even try to help him. They just step over someone who was in pain and hurting. To kind of give you a painted scenario of this, many, many years ago, uh, during one of our, every year, the Southern Baptist Convention has a, uh, a convention, uh, st- you know, statewide, or, or, with the United States, so it's our, our, our convention every year. So um, unbeknownst to those who were coming to the convention, now we're talking about 30,000 people that usually show up. There was a homeless man that was parked outside the doors of those who were entering into this religious scenario and situation where they're going to praise Jesus and they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to hear people preaching and talking and and so he he laid there for two days and then on the third day he got up from his spot walked into the auditorium up to the podium he was the keynote speaker and began talking about how he was treated while he was laying there as a homeless man You can imagine the indictment that people began to feel as they just walked around this guy, did not pay attention to him. Some of them had very harsh words to say about him, and this you kind of get the picture of what Jesus is painting here. Sometimes Christians are only known for what we are against and not what we are for. Jesus was always making known what he was for, not what he was against. That's the difference. And so Jesus uses this Samaritan to correct the Jews. Now, if you recall that the Samaritans were considered half Jewish. Many, many years before that, the Jewish people intermingled with the Assyrians when they were taken off into captivity. It's all back in the Old Testament. And they became half Jews, and they wanted to kind of unite with the, the Jews, reunite as they're building the temple. And the Jews said, no, you guys are half-breeds. We don't want anything to do with you. And so you have Galilee, Samaria, Judea. So if a Jew was going from Galilee to Judea, he would never come through Samaria. He would go around Samaria because he did not deem it wor- them worthy of him coming through there. 
This is kind of the rift that is between the two of them. And so for a Samaritan to be the one who showed pity upon this person who's just been half beat to death, well, the lawyer would get the, the message, right? That was a stinging rebuke. They had the right doctrine. They just didn't know how to put it into practice. The point is that sometimes we have to be humble enough to receive correction from somebody that may not even be a part of the kingdom of God. When I first got saved, and as I said, my behaviors did not change automatically overnight. I was a partier. I was still a partier. And while I was at one said party, a young lady said to me, what are you doing here? Aren't you going to church now? I said, yes, I do. Then what are you doing here? You don't belong here anymore. And so it was a stinging rebuke to my conscience that the Holy Spirit took hold of and said, that's right, you don't belong here. This is not your scene anymore. This is not what I have for you anymore. These are people that I love that you're partying with, and I want to see them to come to faith in Jesus, and maybe God will use you to do that. But this is not where your scene is any longer. And so Jesus acknowledged in this parable the absolute hypocrisy and injustice of the hands of the church. And so it asks, leads to the question that people ask, and I have this on your outline. Do injustices practiced by the people of a particular belief system invalidate that belief system? Is it, if it's true that people can point to our character flaws, our injustices, our hypocrisy at times, does that invalidate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its power unto salvation? The power to save and to heal and to deliver. And the answer to that question is absolutely not. We may not be all we ought to be yet, but God's working on us, right? He's got, we're still under construction, have you often heard. Think about communist Russia, Chinese, Cambodian regimes that all rejected organized religion. But they have been responsible for more acts of genocide than any religious organization ever in existence. Tim Keller, who is the pastor of the Redeemer Church, Presbyterian Church in Manhattan for many, many years, just retired, great theologian of our day and time. Here's what he said. We can only conclude that there are some violent impulse, there's some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart that is exp express, it expresses itself regardless of what the beliefs of a particular society might be. Whether socialist or capitalist, whether religious or irreligious, whether individualistic or hierarchical. And so what he's saying is, there may be great hypocrisy, but that doesn't mean you just throw it out. Right? You ever been to a doctor, a medical doctor, and you thought, man, this dude was a hypocrite. Uh, he, he didn't do his job. He misdiagnosed me, mistreated me. Did you just give up on the medical field altogether? Well, of course not. But yet people want to give up on the church now. Knowns, which are people who are spiritual but don't want any affiliation with a local church, is the fastest growing religion in America right now, especially among the younger generation. So what are some reasons why the church gets off mission? Well, here's three of them. One is a lack of spiritual guidance, a lack of spiritual guidance. What I mean by that is this, borrowing a little bit from last weekend, you know, when you're living hell up or heaven down, uh, if you're living according to the flesh, remember the, the flesh 
is the part of you, it really has much to do with your mind, right? So all of your life, you had experiences, both good, bad, painful, and otherwise, and you develop thought processes around those experiences. And so Satan comes along, and he, he develops kind of what I call lie-based thinking, right? And so you interpret the situation in the way that you, which you want to interpret it. And so that lie-based thinking becomes the thought patterns, the default patterns of your thought processes. For example, several, a few years ago when we did the series on toxic, and I asked you to fill out the card, when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? What are the thoughts that roll around in your head about yourself? And 99.9% of them were negative because that's just our default mechanism. We always gravitate towards the negative. And so Satan comes along and he tries to create great division in your thinking. Division means two visions. So, for example, if a couple gets married and they have kids but they have two different blueprints by which they're going to raise those kids, how they're going to discipline them, what role religion is going to play in their lives. And uh, let's say a believer married a non-believer, and the non-believer is like, I don't care if kids go to church or not. And believers like, yeah, we're going to take them. It's like, well, I don't think so. I think we're going to go. Uh, so you have two visions. Guess what you, two visions results in? Division, right? Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's what the flesh does to us. It tries to divide us. The flesh keeps you chained to the past. It keeps you hopeless, defeated, fearful, condemned, depressed. It hijacks your brain and your thoughts that continually run in a circle without any way of escape. And so your conclusion always is, well, everything's hopeless. Nothing will ever change. Nothing ever turns out the way I want it to. It's never going to happen for me. So the process is that we have to renew our mind. So when your mind gets in this, so Paul said, look, you're either going to be guided by this fleshly thinking or you're going to be guided by the Holy Spirit of God who's going to take the truth of God's word and he's going to start cutting some new neural uh, pathways in your brain so that you begin thinking uh, according to God's truth not according to the lies that you've believed that have kept you chained to the past all your life. Where, you've, you discuss, where you just constantly are experiencing defeat and discouragement and, and all those things. So in that mind renewal, you have to take God's word and you have to base your thought processes on the truth regardless of what you see. So let me give you an example. When the ten spies were sent into the promised land back in the Old Testament, you know, Israel got out of Egyptian bondage. God promised them, I'm taking you to the promised land. It's a land flowing milk and honey. The ten spies, the spy, or twelve spies went into the land. They spy out the land. And when they came back, they all saw the same thing, right? Ten of them said, the land is filled with giants. There's no way we can go in there. We can't overcome these giants. Well, they'll defeat us in a heartbeat. But Joshua and Caleb, who saw the same exact scenario, said, we can take the land. We've got this. Why? Because God said it's ours. And therefore, we need to go and take the land, just as God told us. But the nation of Israel sided with the ten spies who were all negative and lie-based thinking, and therefore they had to wander around the wilderness 
for another 40 years until that unbelieving generation died off. But guess who got to go into the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. Caleb's over 80 years old, and he says to God, I'm telling you what, God, I want you to give me the biggest, baddest mountain that I've got to route my enemies. That's the mountain that I want. Why? Because he thought differently than those who saw the facts but yet chose to base their actions on lie-based thinking rather than seeing the future as God sees it so that you begin living according to what God wants to do. And it all has to do with the words that you speak. Listen, if you're constantly speaking to yourself, negativity, lie-based thinking, it can't happen, it will never take place, no one... Guess what? Your, your life always moves in the direction of your most dominant thinking. So you take God's truth and you start speaking that truth as though it has already come to pass, even if it has not come to pass yet. And the gap between when you start that to where God fulfills it is called faith. You just keep trusting in God and his word and see what God will do. Because your life begins moving in the direction as though it's already happened, even though it has not happened yet. So you're not putting your mind on the natural things that you can see in the physical realm. You're putting it upon the supernatural realm of God's existence because God is a supernatural God who does supernatural things. See the difference? And so you want to stay on course on mission? we got to keep our minds focused there. Number two is lacking of integrity. Now, I, well, you know, there are oftentimes high-profile pastors, for example, who have lost their ministries and their marriages because they were preaching on kindness and goodness and self-control, all the while uh, they were simultaneously involved in other things, right, that were not healthy for them or their families. Listen, I love grace, and I am grateful for grace, but if you are indulging in a destructive lifestyle with no plans of taking an about-face, then a conversation is going to happen between you and God regarding that situation. All right? So if God wants to move you and he sees you getting off course, he's going to come to you, right? The Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to stop you dead in your tracks. And let's say he wants to stop you dead in your tracks, but you're not listening, you're not hearing. He does have a way to pull the rug out from under you in order to get you to stop So you have nowhere to go, you have nowhere to look up, but right there, and you say, okay, God, I'm here, you've got my attention, please speak. Why? Because God, when he sees you, your life getting off track, I can assure you that every one of these pastors, the Holy Spirit tried to stop them in their tracks over and over again. In fact, uh, Dallas Willard, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many, many, many years, he's he's since died, uh, did a study to find out what's the commonality between these pastors who are are having affairs and ruining their lives, their ministries, and and their marriages. And the, the common thing was they had no accountability in their life. No one they were being accountable to. And so they just learned how to squelch the voice of the Spirit and to continue moving forward And listen, when you do that, the lie of the enemy is no one's ever going to find out. No one's ever going to know. This isn't going to hurt anybody. Remember what we said last week, what the flesh does? The flesh always baits the hook. There's always a hook. And once Satan has hooked you, trust me, he will expose every single thing you're doing. 
to get us off track, to get us off mission. That's the spiritual warfare that you go through. In fact, I'm working on a series for the fall. It's called Winning the War. It's going to be one of the most in-depth studies I've ever done on spiritual warfare. And we're going to apply it to winning the war in your marriage, winning the war in parenting, winning the war in strongholds um, because it's so, so essential. Here's number three is a lack of love. True faith is marked by a profound concern for the poor and the marginalized. But there can be two motives. So let me mention these and then we'll, we'll tie this up. Let's say, for example, you see a little old lady walking down the streets of Columbus. She's carrying a purse, just came out of the bank. And you're thinking to yourself, I think I'm going to go knock her down and take her money. Now, why wouldn't you do that? Well, you can have one or two motives. You can either think to yourself, well, you know what? If I did that, and my luck, I'd get caught on a camera on the streets or somebody's cell phone, and I would be... Man, it'd be all over the news, and I would be um, displayed as a despicable person. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a despicable person. And so the reason why you're not going to do what it is you may be tempted to do is because it's really self-regarding. You're, you're focused. Your actions are affected by what honors you and what honors your reputation. Well, let's take that same scenario but you have a different motive. You imagine how much it would hurt that woman if you mugged her, how much she may be dependent upon that money, and how other people may be dependent upon her dependency upon that money. And because you love her and value her, you would never think of knocking her down on the streets and taking her purse. Now all of a sudden, your motive is, what is best for her and her dependents? What is best for her? And so I've moved now from being me-centered to being other-centered, right? The first scenario, my concern was for me and my reputation. The second scenario, I'm concerned more for her, not my reputation. Now, this is why this is important when it comes to love. Because, you know, we have what we call a, a, a four-chair discipleship process. Because when people, you know, meism is the thing of our society. All right, so when I got saved, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. Jesus, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. You look at your prayers, it was all about me, it was all about me, it was all about me. But as I began to grow, now it becomes more of, well... Now it's more like I-centered, like, uh, okay, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. But as you grow into the third chair, it's more like we-centered, like it's us. We're us-centered. But when you get into the, height, the highest chair of spiritual growth and maturity, it's others-centered. Now here's why this is important. I'll give you an, an example out of our own church. You know, this, this year we did a... Um, Christmas Eve community service, and it was very inconvenient, right? It cost, it was a lot of time invested, there was a lot of money invested, advertisement, I mean, you know, our praise team had to, you know, use a, a kind of a makeshift uh, sound system and all these things. 
why would we go to all that? Why, why would we do all of that? Because, quite frankly, it would have been a whole lot easier to have it here. And it would have been good for us. But not necessarily good for others. So the whole goal of that was that others out of our community who are outside the kingdom, who do not know Jesus, would come to that site rather than this site in order to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we had several who came out of the community, who came and heard the gospel, and some who made a decision for Christ. So the goal is what? Is that if, if we just build our church around what is convenient for us and what is good for us, we forget all about those who are by the roadside bleeding and blooding and bruised because we're only concerned about us. So we're like the Levite and the priest, like we're going to do our religious thing, but we're really not concerned about those who are outside the kingdom of God. If we're really concerned about those outside the kingdom of God, we'll be like the Samaritan who did what? Who took the time, who spent the money, who gave the attention to the person who was outside the kingdom. Jesus was the ultimate Samaritan who saw us in our bloody, bruised, broken condition, and he entered into the world. It was not convenient for him. It was very painful process, and all that he went through in order to supply grace for us to bind our wounds and make us into new wine. This changes the entire approach to how we do church. I was at a church in Dayton on Thursday for a meeting, uh, looking at the possibility of um, reaching out to our military in greater ways. And so uh, this church has a building dedicated just for their children, all right, entire building. When I walked into that building, because that's where they held, held the meeting, this thing would rival Disney. It is amazing what we are doing in churches today in order to attract people. Well, what do people want? And what do they like? And how are we going to make the most comfortable for them? And how are we going to do that? And we are, we are devoid the power of God. And we're trying to make up for it. I'm not against those things. I, you know, I'm all about doing what we need to do to, to reach people. I'm simply trying to say... That look, um, the answer to God, God's answer to society is the gospel. But the gospel, uh, it kills our pride because pride says, man, look what I've done. I've worked so hard. I've, I've accumulated all these things. And, and, you know, the reason why people, you know, that, that like the, the Samaritan comes across this guy. Well, the reason he's that way and he's poor and he's destitute is because he didn't work hard enough. And he's just lazy and, and didn't do anything. If we're not careful, pride in religion can say, you know what, we begin to um, demonize the very people that we've been called to reach. And we put labels on them, right? We put labels on them so that they are almost like they're inhumane and we don't want to have to do anything with them. There's so much label calling in our society right now. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like you just put a label on somebody, then we don't have to mess with them. And selfishness on the other side is what the gospel also kills our selfishness. Uh, you know, I'm only going to look out for me. No one else is looking out for me, so i got to look out for me. I can't afford to look out for you. Uh, because I've, I've got to look out for me so no one else is important. And the question that this guy asked Jesus that brought him into this trap, and what Jesus gave us the response is to say, listen, here's what the gospel produces. The gospel produces others 
centered, agape, sacrificial love. That means to those of us who are inside the kingdom of God, there is absolutely nothing that we would not do or seek to do in order to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That we have to go the extra mile. We have to be inconvenienced at times. We have to be displayers of the grace of God. And so I close with this example. Back in October of 2007, in an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a gunman came into their school because he was mad at God. And he let all the children go except for 10 girls. And he lined them up in front of the chalkboard. Two of those girls said to the gunman, if you will let the other eight go, you can have us. But he refused. He shot every single one of those girls in the head. Five of them survived. That's why we know the story. One of those little girls who was shot in the head and killed. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the parents of that little girl who died got in their buggy, drove to the house of the shooter, walked up and knocked on the door. A woman answered, and they said, this is who we are. Your husband shot our daughter. She died in this accident or in this tragedy. But we want you to know we're not here for revenge. That's not our goal. We have come to your house to grieve together. You've lost a husband. Your children have lost a father because the gunman shot himself after he killed those, sought to kill those girls. Even the cynical journalist said something supernatural and divine was happening. The Amish are fundamentalists by any standard. But did their fundamentalism lead to hatred? Absolutely not. It led to a sacrificial, agape love that caused the entire nation to rise up and to see the gospel in action. Now, I, I don't know how, I, I wish I could respond that way. I say I, I would respond that way. I don't know. I've never had to face that scenario. But Jesus' point to us is that regardless of what people say about Christianity, when the world sees us living it out, it absolutely puts God in a position to do supernatural things that will cause the world to rise up and say, there is something unique and different about those people. We want to follow somebody like that who can so radically change our lives for the better. Let's pray together.